Good morning, everyone, and I'm glad you could be here. I'm Jeff Strong. I'm the pastor of Nelson Covenant Church. And before we get into our message today, I wanted to remind you that this month, the month of May, we have launched a fundraising campaign called The Big Give. And this is where we are encouraging everybody in our church, young and old, man, woman, and child, uh, to look for a way that they can give above and beyond their normal giving to our church to a number of amazing kingdom initiatives that are happening in and through our community. We've listed those on our Facebook page. An email went out. We'll highlight it in the Summit newsletter as well. Uh, This is a month where we want to push into the mission of God and support ministries doing great work. Uh, It's been a hard time for ministries as uh, so much feels like it's kind of grounded to a bit of a halt and yet the needs of ministries continue. And so we want to highlight uh, some initiatives, uh, people, projects near, some far, and hope that you will look for ways that you can uh, contribute above and beyond what you would normally uh, do over the course of the month. And then we'll kind of publish the total amount of giving over the month of May, and then maybe year over year. We'll just try and break that record. But this is an exciting time. It's really tempting during these times to hesitate when it comes to giving and be a bit more self-preservationist because of the uncertainty that lies ahead of us. But uh, coming out of a number of conversations that I had, I just realized, yeah, this is a time where I need to lean in a different direction myself. And I want to challenge us to do that as a church. Uh, So let's be the church this month and give big as part of uh, our discipleship call to follow Jesus. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll move into the text this morning. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for everybody joining us, wanting to learn, to grow, to stretch themselves. Would you use this time as we go into this strange but powerful book, God, to focus our attention on you, to make us sensitive to your spirit, to do a work in our hearts so that we're eager to not just hear these words, but to apply them and to obey you. We want to be a church that honors you, God. And we know that serious, difficult grappling with strange, difficult, complex texts are part of that. And so as we move into one of those texts this morning, would you give us grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 12 today. So it's ideal if you have a Bible, maybe a piece of paper or a notepad that you can take notes or, or highlight. Don't let the screen or, uh, you know, whether we're doing it virtually or in person, um, become a bit of a, a, a crutch of ease. Uh, get used to handling a physical Bible, opening it up, finding your place, making some notes. Uh, that's a good practice, and it actually helps to reinforce what you're learning when you write it down, when you're making those little highlights, even when you're doodling pictures while you're listening, if you're uh, um, so wired in terms of your learning style. So Revelation chapter 12, this is where things start to get really funky in terms of dragons and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon surrounded by stars, and it's wild. Uh, But before we get there, I just want to locate us in the book of Revelation, because that will help us understand how to enter into this text and not misread it. 
So if you think of Revelation as bookends, you've got the first three chapters, which are messages to the seven churches. These are pretty easy to read because they're really like direct messages to literal churches in the first century that have encouragements, warnings, and promises. They address the present reality of those who first received this letter, probably just before the turn of the first century, somewhere around 92, 93 AD. Then at the end of the book, you have this massive, visionary, expansive promise of what God is going to do at the end of history when Jesus returns, judge the living and the dead, renew all of creation, a new heavens, a new earth. It's this amazing hope. But the kind of the middle section is where people are often very confused. There's not too much confusion about the first part. There's not too much confusion about the last part. It's this middle bit. What lies between? Between my present reality and when Jesus comes back, what should I expect? Is there anything, whether it's a particular events or patterns, that I should be sort of attentive to and expectant to encounter? If you blow out, uh, kind of blow up that middle section, this is where um, you start getting a structure built around three sets of sevens. You have a heavenly vision of a throne room and four and five chapters, four and five. But then starting in chapter six, you get the first of a set of seven that gets repeated three times, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And this becomes more or less the centerpiece of the judgments that God brings against the world. And there's some debate around these three sets of sevens. Like, do they represent a chronological uh, playing out of seven successive judgments in these chronological order, followed by another seven, followed by another seven? There's some indication that might be the case. Other people look at these uh, sets of seven judgments and say, no, I think these actually might refer to a cyclical pattern because at the end of each set of seven, there seems to be an ultimate final judgment. But then there's kind of a new cycle of judgment that starts, but it ends in an ultimate cycle of judgment. So maybe this is the same pattern repeated and explained or viewed from different angles such that we are the what's being reinforced is that God is going to uh, judge uh, the world and the inhabitants of the earth. And uh, it's not trying to so much give precise details around what that's going to look like. It's going to instead reinforce this message of judgment and this and as a serious warning, and it's going to do so by reinforcing symbols and patterns. Now, of course, whether you read these sealed judgments and trumpet judgments and bull judgments as a chronology of successive judgments or a cycle will depend a lot on your interpretational framework, meaning the way that you're going into these texts, assuming they're meant to be read. There's essentially four views of how to read and interpret and apply revelation. We've been looking at those. And uh, just as an overview, I, I did a more extensive overview last week, but the preterist view says that all this middle section or the vast majority of it has already been fulfilled in the past. 
So we're reading ancient history. Preterist means past. We're referring to the past. So when we read the book of Revelation, these were warnings of judgment that Jesus gave to local churches in the first century because these things were going to soon take place uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem. The historicist view says, no, these judgments have occurred, but they've stretched far beyond just the first century. They've actually occurred over history. And when we look at these three sets of seven judgments, what these are showing us is that there's going to be big cataclysmic judgments that will occur in the timeline between when Jesus has uh, established his church at Pentecost all the way to, to until he comes again in glory. And so each of these judgments refer to a specific historical event that has happened over the last 2000 years, most of which have probably already been fulfilled, but a few that still lie in the future. The futurist view says the book of Revelation is mostly about future prophecy. The vast majority of the book, except for the first three chapters in the letters, really only directly applies to the final generation before Jesus comes back. And all of these judgments are going to be compacted into a very tight seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. And so what we're reading, according to this view, when we read about these judgments, it's something that's going to happen into the future, but it hasn't happened yet. And then the last view is the spiritual or the idealist view. And it says, um, it's not right or wise to take these um, particular symbolic judgments and try and connect them to one particular person or event. Instead, what Revelation is doing, what the Spirit of God through this message to John is doing, is showing Christians in every age and every time and place the kinds of things that they should expect to happen when they are faithful to Jesus in the midst of a hostile world which, in which anti-Christ forces are being brought to bear, especially in, which, in context in which they're being asked to worship another leader as God, literal idolatry. And so the spiritualist sees most of the book of Revelation, this middle section, as patterns that will repeat throughout history, but they're not necessarily like the fifth judgment, the fifth trumpet judgment isn't necessarily directly referring to the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther's uh, kind of earth-shaking rebellion against uh, Roman Catholic teaching at the time. The way, or one way that I would summarize the book of Revelation is that it is a symbolic vision that brings hope and challenge to Jesus's people, i.e. the church. And it reveals God's perspective. It reveals God's purposes for history. And it reveals how Christians in every time and place are called to faithfulness to God instead of compromise to value systems that are anti-God and anti-Christ. So, depending on how good you are kind of reading between the lines there, you might've picked up, or maybe you've picked it up in previous uh, messages that while I recognize, I think there's some good, um, there's some good points to the futurist and the preterist perspective. 
Uh, I'm not a fan of the historicist perspective, which we'll get to another example why today when we go through the text. Uh, but I do lean a little bit more in terms of the spiritual idealist perspective, because I think it's a really rich perspective that makes the book of Revelation imminently practical for every Christian. And in the same way, I see it as kind of an extended commentary on Ephesians 6, where we're told, talk, talked about the armor of God and our battle is not against flesh and blood. And then this book of Revelation opens that up in this wild, evocative symbolism that is designed to like get us excited about not that there are all these big spiritual threats around us, but that Christ is bigger and sovereign over those threats. And he is bringing history to a end game, to an end point, And we are safe and secure in him. It's an amazing book read that way. So this is where we are today. We're kind of uh, between the second and the third set of seven judgments. There's kind of a, an, an extended interlude for a number of chapters where John has a successive series of visions or what he calls signs. And Someone asked me, are we going to go into like each of the, like, what does the third seal and the fifth trumpet represent? And I'm not going to do that. If you want to do a bit of a deeper dive into the particularities around some of these um, highly loaded symbols in Revelation, I would recommend this book. This is one of the most accessible books that you don't even have to read from start to finish to get a lot out of. It's designed so that each of the four views that we've been talking about are represented. And you can just, if you're reading uh, the part in Revelation about the mark of the beast, and you're like, oh, how do these views uh, understand this again? You can flip right there, and it'll just have four columns and say, here's the text, and here's how each view treats that. And it, tries to, it tries to do so as neutrally uh, as possible and really present the best arguments from each view but it's also very accessible for the average person. You don't need to be a PhD scholar. Scholar, This is my go-to book for people who are really interested in their own time doing a deeper dive into the book of Revelation. And it helps you not get stuck in one view, but really expand your understanding and appreciation for all of the views, uh, even if you're going to ultimately land on one as your own interpretational grid. Okay. Here we are, Revelation 12. I'm going to read through it on the screen. You can follow on the screen. You can follow along if you have a Bible with you. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. And then another sign in heaven appeared. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven, hurled them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had prepared a place by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. 
And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. And therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river and the dragon had spewed from its mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against her, against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Intense. Okay. How do each of the four views very quickly understand the symbolism? Well, we're kind of in luck. There's a high degree of overlap here. All of the views are uh, pretty close in their understanding of the major symbols here. The preterist position says the woman is Israel. You've got the 12 stars, the 12 tribes. You've got the uh, being clothed in the sun and the moon, which is a a subtle reference to um, Joseph's coat and and his dreams. So the woman Israel, from Israel is birthed a child, Jesus, the one who's going to rule all the nations eventually. And obviously when Jesus was born, uh, Satan brought earthly forces to bear like Herod trying to kill the child. And and yet uh, the the child and its mother were rescued off into the wilderness and, and fled to Egypt. And so the symbolism here is Israel giving birth to the Messiah and the satanic empire of Rome trying to snuff out the Messiah's existence. The historicist position has a a bit of a stranger take because, again, they're trying to locate these things in history. And while they would agree at a very, well, I don't even know if they'd agree. I'm not sure if that's fair to say. They would say the woman doesn't quite represent Israel, but the church, the new Israel, and the child that it's birthing is Jesus. But they also have this idea that it It's about political influence and the growth of the church in the first century and how the great dragon of Rome was trying to snuff out that life, the life of the church. So again, you can see there's some similarities there, but it leans in trying to localize this to a period of church history and not make direct comparisons to Israel, Jesus, and Satan. The futurist perspective and the spiritual idealist one is almost in complete alignment with the preterist one. The woman represents Israel. The child represents Jesus. And the dragon represents Satan. 
But the futurist, you can imagine, says, yes, while Satan has been persecuting the church, tried to destroy Jesus, tried to destroy his church for thousands of years, during the final tribulation, there will be an escalation of this war against the Messiah and his people. And the spiritual idealists just say, no, this is just, we are caught in a spiritual battle. And uh, we are moving through these patterns of Satan rising up to leverage certain worldly powers against God's people and God's people fleeing, finding refuge, finding protection, God delivering his church uh, generation after generation. So not a lot of controversy here in terms of the major symbols, but the major symbols are, are kind of spelled out in a text. So even though the symbols are weird, Revelation chapter 12 kind of connects the dots uh, pretty readily for us. Now you might move through this text and say, okay, I get the symbols. Israel, Jesus, Satan, war in heaven, spiritual battle. That reminds me a lot of Ephesians 6 and putting on the full armor of God. But how, what do I do with a passage like this? Like if this is part of my daily devotion, how do I read this and be like, uh, okay, how do I pray around this passage? What do I do with it? This is where I think the spiritual idealist perspective is so helpful because what it invites us to do is to say, just sit with the text, sit with the symbols, imagine it in your mind's eye and look for patterns in the text. Look for overlap between what the text is inviting you to notice and what you notice in your own spiritual journey. Because remember the spiritual idealist view will say, these are patterns that repeat throughout history. And they won't all apply to your life, but many of them will. Much in the book of Revelation will apply directly to your life, directly to your marriage, directly to your life together with other Christians as part of a local church, life in the world. It'll do so at a symbolic level, and so if we sit with the symbols or the themes that the symbols pull us into, it can be a rich source of reflection and spiritual meditation. So for example, let me highlight two themes that the symbols in a really um, disruptive way force us to pay attention to. How about the theme of life in the wilderness? If you read this text a few times, you're going to notice Twice in verse 6 and then in 14, it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God and she was nourished there. And then it says the woman experienced a supernatural deliverance. She was given two wings of a giant eagle so that she could fly away from Satan's power to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time. And if you think about that experience, that wilderness experience, the more we know the Bible, that'll start to start to set off some, oh yeah, wilderness. That's kind of a big theme in the Bible, right? Wilderness is this really um, interesting place that is very, very complex because it's a place of protection, of formation, whether you're talking about Israel's time in the wilderness, Jesus's time in the wilderness, right? Uh, it's a place of transitions, but it's also a dangerous place. It's a place of isolation. Um, and it was 
isolation, not just physical isolation, but spiritual isolation and relational isolation. Um, maybe that would cause us to kind of just center on that theme of wilderness and consider where have we experienced God rescuing us from chaos, drawing us to a place where we can be nourished. Right? You could use this passage to think through questions like, how do we find God's peace and presence in a hostile world? What have you found to be working in your life? What's not working? How do you find nourishment in times of real challenge and testing? And is the nourishment and, and the process of accessing that from God, is that the same every time, regardless of the testing? Do you have to learn different ways of doing it? Does that process always look the same? And you could reflect on that and prayerfully consider and journal on that at the level of yourself or in your marriage or as a church. Where have I experienced nourishment? How do I nourish myself when times are difficult? Or you could flip that and say, okay, God wants to nourish his people. He wants to strengthen his church. He wants to strengthen us in these wilderness experiences what are signs that we're allowing ourselves to become spiritually malnourished, right? What does being kind of a weakened, anemic Christian look like? What does it look like to be a malnourished church so that I can become aware of those signs so that I can get ahead of them and say, God, I am, <laughs> I mean, this is really cheesy, right? Like I am running low on, on vitamin, on vitamin Jesus. I need some like, um, deep spiritual nourishment because I can, I can see the, the, um, the malformed fruit showing up in my life of not being connected to the vine. How do I get back there, Jesus? So that would be an example of a theme that you could take from this evocative text that would actually should push all of us deeper into a more reflective stance to say, God, are you leading me into a wilderness? I mean, we're all experiencing a kind of wilderness through this pandemic. These would be good questions for us to pray about, journal about, talk with at least one other Christian friend, trusted Christian friend about. What about the other theme? This is maybe a little bit more obvious, that life is a battle against a spiritual enemy. Again, this is kind of like Ephesians 6 writ large with a deeper and more arresting imagery. Um, verse 17. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And then it says who the rest of her offspring are. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. So now that Satan hasn't been able to utterly destroy Israel or Israel's Messiah, Satan turns his attention to those who have yielded their lives to Jesus and are now working to establish and expand God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's helpful to ponder and think about, right? Because Christians are prone to two mistakes, two errors of extremes when it comes to any talk around spiritual warfare, or spiritual battles, we either say, oh, that, I don't know, I just, we, we either intentionally or unintentionally remain oblivious to it and minimize it, or 
we fixate on it in such a way that we become full of fear and are living with this haunted sense of concern about being demonized or oppressed by demonic forces at every turn, every wrong move. So one question for meditation, for reflection in your own life could be, how does this passage help us to avoid both of those errors? How does the ebb and flow of the spiritual battle depicted here help us adjust our expectations of what our lives are going to look like if we actually live into God's call and God's mission? Right? If, if Satan is marshalling his forces against the church of God, then that should at least help us to understand why in many ways life will be more difficult if we are a Christian. And so when hard times of testing come, we won't be tempted to say, well, wait a second. I thought if I gave my life to Jesus, God will just protect me from every uh, scary, bad, difficult thing. Isn't that the point? No. Will God protect his church? Absolutely. Will God powerfully protect us sometimes, body, mind, and spirit? Absolutely. But the Bible also wants to make clear, and Revelation 12 is one of those passages that makes it clear, that we are in a spiritual battle. God has given us armor. We have a role in that battle to overcome evil, not by doing greater evil or a different kind of evil. We overcome evil by doing good, by loving and forgiving and sacrificing and generously giving to those around us. That's how our victory is achieved. But it's still going to feel like war. Some of the time. Maybe much of the time. We're going to have wounds. We're going to experience scars on this side of heaven. And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Because God wants us to understand. And a lot of the book of Revelation is about teaching the church to understand life is war. But stay faithful to Jesus because he is the great master and commander and he will bring you through. He will bring you through to ultimate victory. So I hope that's been helpful as a way to not just maybe better understand this particular text, but how you could leverage texts like this that at first pass seem really strange and totally irrelevant to your life and actually sit with them, take some notes, pr prayerfully go over them and realize there's something here to challenge me in my walk with Jesus. Now, those are only two themes. There's lots of themes in this text that you could um, dig into, and I encourage you to do that this week. But that's why as we move through these center section signs and judgments, I think it's really important for us to at least practice incorporating a spiritualist perspective where we're saying, how does this text apply to my life? How does this text reveal a pattern that I should expect, or maybe I'm experiencing, and how to respond as a disciple? As we do that, revelation will become so much more alive to us, not because we're figuring out the blueprint of some cosmic plan and figuring out, oh, this goes here, and it's like a paint-by-number thing. It's not that. 
revelation will become more powerful to us because it will teach us how to more effectively lean into the grace and power of Jesus and to draw on his strength to be nourished by his spirit and his word and his power so that we can go out into the world knowing we have an enemy, but moving into the world armored and confident and ready for the battle ahead of us. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, into a new week, may God deliver us from evil. May God prepare us for life in the wilderness as individuals, couples, families, a church. And may God nourish those of us walking in wilderness places right now. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for popping by and we'll talk to you soon.